0: And welcome to Equals. This is Nadia.
1: And this is Max. Nice to be with you. So, Nadia, what's what's new with you this week?
0: We're leaving our house, man. Like, we haven't left our house at all, and we're leaving our house. That's a evening. big deal. That's a big yeah, deal. Yeah, and we're, we're going to um, like this forested lake area in Maryland, about three hours away. And, and so all the fighting that has been happening in our house, uh, between and with the kids, is now going to happen in another house that is probably less equipped to handle it. So it's going to be fun.
1: Yeah, that's family <laughs> holidays. But no, that's wonderful. It no, that oh, should be fun. Um,
0: well, uh, enough about me. Let's get to our guest today, who I am super excited about. It is Liddy Nackville. She's a legend in the activist scene. Um, just some of the things that she's doing. She's coordinator of the Asian People's Movement on Debt and Development, She's co-coordinator of the global campaign to demand climate justice. One of the founders of the Fight Inequality Alliance, which is very near and dear to our hearts, and that's just a sprinkling of things that she's doing. She's mad busy, and I'm really happy she's taken the time to to sit with us today.
1: Yeah, she's an incredibly busy woman and never stops. Um, and really fascinating. She's one of the few people who really bridges the 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 gap between kind of economic justice, fighting for debt cancellation, but also she's Really really big in the climate movement fighting for climate justice too so she's she's a fascinating lady
0: yeah, so very exciting and um, you know her well right
1: yeah we, we know each other well I've known her for about twenty years um in fact the last time I saw Liddy it um, was in a convent just outside Manila there were these uh, radical nuns who were convening helping we were convening a meeting uh, at the convent. They used to hide people during the dictatorship and there's a long history of radicalism in this place. And anyway, we got to the end of the meeting and there were activists from all over Asia and we all had a kind of sing along. And Liddy persuaded me to uh, stand up and sing a Billy Bragg song. So my my last memory of Liddy is excruciatingly embarrassing, to be
0: honest. And maybe just excruciating for those who were listening.
1: <laughs> uh, pretty, pretty sure it was excruciating for everyone who was listening and watching. Um, although I must say, I mean, I was a singer in a punk band for a decade at one point.
0: No, you were not. You were not.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, I was. We were angry. We were angry about many things. And uh, I was a uh, kind of. It was more like melodic shouting than singing, to be honest.
0: <laughs> okay, need videos. Definitely need videos. Where are they?
1: Unfortunately, there are none. It was uh, pre-YouTube. Uh, those days uh,
0: yeah. right right and pre-electricity even maybe
1: yeah i see if i can dig out i think there's a 78 you know maybe some black and white photos grainy things
0: you <laughs> know. okay we'll we'll find them soon and we'll we'll try and share them on the blog or, or maybe on twitter or something i'm but sure let, listeners
1: <laughs> listeners would just love to hear yeah definitely
0: <laughs> let's listen to the interview with lydia shall we
1: yeah let's Liddy, it's really, really good of you to do this interview for Equals. Um, we've known each other for almost 20 years. Uh, I remember <laughs> yes. debating debt with you back in 2003. So I'm um, I, I just really, really excited to do this interview and, and learn a bit more from you and talk a bit about inequality. So thank you very much for doing this.
0: And yeah, no, I'm really excited to learn uh, more about you uh, and more from you, Liddy. Yes, I'm
2: looking forward to our chat. <laughs>
1: First thing I wanted to ask you, Li, I mean I know a little bit about your story, but the listeners won 't and I, I think it 's not just you there 's kind of a Filipino mafia in civil society in the world who all kind of cut their teeth <laughs> fighting fighting Marco um, and maybe just tell us a little bit about your story and your history of fighting the dictatorship in the Philippines.
2: Okay, so I am actually from one of several generations who started our activism and our involvement in many social issues uh, at a time when the country was uh, placed under martial rule. Um, So the build up to that was a few years of many protests over many social issues and inequality with definitely one of those issues because in the Philippines, you can see very vividly the huge difference between rich and poor. And then martial law was declared because the the, the government, the president wanted to quell the unrest because by that time, and I was in elementary school, when that was happening, we had almost daily demonstrations. So there were several generations of young people who emerged from that period and i am one of i was one of those what was later called martial law babies because by the time we got to high school martial law was already in place and so in during our youth our teen years we hardly had any other experience of governance than what we were experiencing at that time. But I'd like to say that I think for many in my generation it wasn't about martial law right away but what really got to us was um, you know the the huge difference between the life that we knew as young people from middle class families and what we could clearly see was the stark, Poverty and um, the deprivation that we could see in in many places in in the city where we lived in Metro Manila and even as you go out into the provinces even within my own uh, big family we could see the difference between The situation of our relatives who were farmers or, you know, very uh, low paid uh, government employees and the situation of other families within within our clan that were, you know, had better were had much better situation and then the life of the super rich. So that was, I guess, my main motivation from the beginning was I was. Perplexed why this was so, and you know, had a very huge impression on me that this was such an unjust situation and that there should be something that should be done about that. Tell us about
1: the activism of those days because there was a lot of fighting back against the dictatorship, wasn't there?
2: This was at a time when everything was not allowed. Any any kind of open gathering wasn't allowed. All the school papers and organizations were closed down. All kinds of organizations were closed down, not just in the universities. So it was an effort to try and break through that kind of situation. So a lot of that activity came from youth and student organizations where I was from. So my very early involvement was to try to first distribute leaflets, protesting uh, increase in prices and demanding a rollback of prices of basic goods. This was in the 70s. We were trying to break through with these kinds of demonstration of protests that you take for granted today. And trying to make sure that our voices would not continually be repressed. So we were breaking through that terror and fear that people had about open protest. We went from that to organizing what we would call lightning rallies, because you had to do it for five minutes and then disappear. And then we graduated uh, because now people became more emboldened to holding rallies and mobilizations where tens of thousands of people participated. Until right before Marcos fell, we had millions of people on the street. So that was the whole experience we had for several years working from that could say zero level to a level where we had millions protesting. And that for me is very much part of what I am today and what we I do today, because I think that was really a very rare opportunity for our generation to be tempered and to be, you know, strengthened. By that entire experience.
0: I mean, it sounds like a defining moment, of course, for the country, but also a defining moment for the individuals like yourself who were involved. I, I bet there were hundreds of stories you could recount from those days. But I wonder, are there any particular stories or um, moments that stick out for you during those times that you would want to share with us?
2: One of the times that for me, it was a very important moment in terms of knowing who I was and where I stood was when I was 27 years old and I had just gotten married a year and a half earlier and had just given birth. My baby was about six months old when my husband was assassinated by the Philippine military. That for me was an important moment because, you know, it was a moment when I Told myself that if I could weather this and survive, I can survive anything because that was really a devastating experience for me. And then I also remember thinking almost immediately after that, thinking that, well, I cannot show any fear and I cannot back away or show any kind of impression that I was, you know, withdrawing from the fight because all of the eyes were on me. I mean, mm. my my husband was a pretty much a very loved leader of the protest movement, also young, my age. And, you know, his death was, in fact, reported in as far away places like Finland. It was on the front page of the New York Times and the LA Times. I mean, all over the world. And I knew the eyes uh, eyes were on me. And if I showed any kind of fear, that would not be good for the morale of many people. In the, in the Philippines, because that was the whole point of the assassination. My husband was the most well known, but he was part of forty three leaders who were assassinated in a matter of six months. Wow! Uh, so you know that that was the point. They wanted to scare us. They wanted to you know quell our 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 movements and our unrest. I mean, there's no way that that they we they were just simply going to cripple us by killing us one by one. They wanted to do this so that we could all be scared and the hope that we will back down. And that's why I knew that I completely had to do the opposite. Gosh,
0: I I really can't even imagine, Lydia. I'm I'm so sorry to hear that story. And also to the pressure you must have felt also as a, a new mother must have been just overwhelming, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, well, partly it helped that I had a baby because, you know, there's no way you can let yourself drown in the grief <laughs> and in fear because you had to be there strong for someone else so immediate like your baby but also yeah. um you know one of the greatest pain is for is to know that she was going to grow up not really knowing her father so
0: i've seen you today um working on issues that are beyond philippines and beyond one issue and i wonder how- how you got from there to here, I and mean, how much would you say that era shaped your framework for how you understand and engage in the broader fight for social justice today?
2: I think um, having a, a deeper understanding of the history of the structures and of the relations, relationships, social relationships that are behind the problem of inequality and of the of the violation of human rights. I think it's the one that makes you go from just being concerned about your people and your country to being concerned about the whole world, <laughs> because you quickly realize that you can't solve it in your own country alone. All of the problems you have have a global dimension to it. and You, know, you can't really fully solve your problems if you just concentrate on, on one country.
1: Just building on that, can I ask you a little bit about the impact from your perspective of COVID-19 and this, this latest crisis, this pandemic. I mean, from where we're sitting, it seems to be adding fuel to almost every inequality, every fire. And I'm very worried it's making the world a lot more unequal. Having been involved in these fights on debt, on climate, on inequality, what what's your perspective on the on the current pandemic and the crisis we're facing?
2: One of the statements I've I've heard some people make, not just once, but a few times, that make me very uneasy was that the COVID-19 uh, pandemic is uh, kind of like an equalizing issue because, you know, everyone's affected, rich or poor. It really makes me uncomfortable because I really beg to disagree because whatever major problem the world has, it always affects the economically Dispossessed and those who are suffering discrimination because of gender and because of race, much, much more than all the rest. For the millions of Filipinos in Metro Manila who live like in a small space, five or six families share the space. What does this mean? Social distancing? It, it doesn't even make sense in their realities because there's no. They have no choice about it. Or. You know we we scrambled around for masks for gloves for things to secure our our health, and they they don't even now they've even lost the opportunity to earn uh, the money they will need to spend so they can eat today, uh, let alone for tomorrow i mean this this is the reality, and I think it we need to keep repeating that because a lot of people take that for granted that there's a whole new different world for those who are dispossessed for those living in in poverty for those living with lots of uh, you know other layers of problems because they're women because they're blacks or because they're indigenous people and so on so as as you said max it 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 escalates it, intensifies it even more but the impacts also expose how much there has been inequality before COVID. There's a lot of the middle-class reality that's taken for granted as the norm uh, when people are talking about it in the news or and so on or policymakers you know.
0: And just thinking about how we go forward from here, because there's two areas, and actually both of which I would probably be interested to hear your thoughts about. We've spoken about inequality, so I wonder what do you see in the aftermath of this pandemic and this economic and health crisis? But then I'm also curious, because you're also quite involved in the fight uh, for climate justice, if you see any opportunities there regarding how we address climate in the recovery, um, and if if there are, you know, particular opportunities at this moment as well,
2: I see this situation as fraught with a lot of threats as well as opportunities. I mean, that may sound clichéish, but it's so true. There's a lot of threats because, you know, in a crisis, everyone is disoriented and kind of desperate for measures to bring back the normal, right? And and that goes with the elites with corporations and so on they're scrambling around to make sure that they resume the the business as that they can do business as usual as before and so there's a lot of fight for bailouts for them to be bailed out for them to be granted new leases on life and that includes being given space and room to continue to pollute, <laughs> to emit greenhouse gas emissions, to even fossil fuel companies are asking for bailouts, for Christ's sake. So there's there's all this threat that because it's a crisis, then let's forget about all the other ambitious plans we have about changing the world. Because what's important now is to stabilize. We saw that in 2008, 2009, in the, during the financial crisis, everyone was talking about stabilizing. Not changing the system, but stabilizing. But it's also an opportunity because we're all, and especially the elites, the big business corporations, governments, we're all in a quandary in terms of what to do. So we must seize this opportunity to not just recover and go back to the old ways of doing things, but to Actually, have a what was the word that I've heard? Reboot a reset of the system so that it's a different system that we're going to set up and build up.
1: I, th- I think, I think you're right. In the uh, well, I mean, one of the things we've seen in the last couple of weeks is this kind of return to protest and this explosion in anger around racism, and certainly uh, mm. a pa- passion not to return to the old world in that sense. And from your perspective in the Philippines, how important uh, do you think? not just racism, but colonialism, understanding those kind of historical relationships is if we are going to build a better world or, 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 or build a more equal world.
2: Yeah, I think it's so essential. I think we, we will not be able to come up with the right answers to what we need to do and what kind of things we need to change and you know what kind of new world we want to build if we don't go back to that history of colonialism and why things are the way they are today. I don't know uh, how it is for new generations now, but it seems to me that there's a little less value now for appreciating history. That was so important for us, several generations of activists in the 80s and the 90s. That was so important for us because it opened our eyes to looking at the world in a very different way, in a more empowering way. Because, you know, all sorts of stupid explanations why we were poor and why our countries are poor was so disempowering. <laughs> it's like, you know, we were being told that we were, you know, lazy as a people because we had shesta. Nobody ever thought that we inherited that from the Spanish under colonialism. But uh, all sorts of stupid explanations why we were poor or, you know, to to this acceptance that, well, that's the way of the world. There's the rich and the poor. And I'm very happy that all these protests are happening. I'm so sorry about the unfortunate, tragic incidents in the US, for instance, that led to this more recent, you know, open protests. But I think it's a truly, really good thing that there are these and hopefully it translates into something that is more sustained rather than just, you know,
0: uh, a temporary outburst of frustration.
1: I hope so. I really hope so.
0: Yeah, and, and on that note, we, we usually ask a final question about hope, um, and you've sort of transitioned us there very naturally, I would say. You know, the three of us probably share a fairly similar grim view on the risks that lie ahead. You know, we've been thinking a lot about the <clears throat> austerity that is likely to come in the recovery period, the, the threat that we will just go back to business as usual, even though it's been disrupted in such a big way. But I wanted to, to end with asking what gives you hope in the fight against inequality? And how do you find the strength and motivation to fight each day?
2: Well, um, I think two things. One, I think I've lived long enough and been involved enough to see that we have won many important victories. And that really affirms the power of power of people and people's movements. I mean, we brought down a dictator. We didn't think that was possible to do within the years that we actually did it. Um, The second, I think, is because of the people I work with. I mean, I've seen in my lifetime so many really good people just persevere, you know, have given their lives either literally dying before their time or have, you know, spent the best years of their lives and continue to spend their lives And service to change and service to people and people's rights. And how can I do any less? And then, of course, every morning when you wake up, there's also all these things ahead of you that you need to do for the day. So that gets Mm -hmm. you going. (laughs) But, yeah, in the the grand scheme of things, I always say, you know, campaigners can't be uh, depressed (laughs) or, you know, discouraged. I mean, there are so many things that make you get up and, you know, do your work. Uh Yeah.
0: Well, I'm I'm fired up and I feel certainly inspired by by you, Liddy, and the stories that you've told. I also feel really honored that you shared them with us today and and I got to get to know you just a little bit better. So thank you. Oh, thank
2: you. I talked a lot.
0: (laughs) That's the point of an interview.
2: Yes,
1: Lily. thank you so much. You're incredibly busy and giving us the time to to talk to us and tell us your story is really inspiring and, and really motivating for our listeners. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you too. I was also inspired by our conversation.
0: Wow, I felt like that was a lesson in why we fight. And I don't mean why we, me, and you. I mean why so many people are and will continue to fight for social justice. I genuinely feel humbled, yeah, really humbled after that discussion. Not just by her stories, but but by Liddy's resilience really to continue fighting all these years.
1: I, I me too, me too. I thought she was great and it was really inspiring. And as always when I hear stories like that, you know, you try and put yourself in their shoes, you know, twenty seven year old, young baby, your husband's been assassinated. The way she picked herself up and fought back, I honestly I'm not sure I could ever be that brave or, or, or face up to those risks or really understand what people have been through. I mean, my life has been such a bastion of comfort compared to to, to activists like that. So it's truly inspiring, yeah.
0: And just thinking about the risks that so many activists around the world are are taking every time they step out there on the front lines for social justice. I really am just so impressed and, and humbled. As I said, that's really the word that just keeps coming to my mind. But the risks that these activists are taking is something that, you know, so many of us need to take into account as we're doing our own activism. There are so many activists in the global north who are in this fight and in solidarity as well. But there is a big difference between being uh, on the front lines and literally risking your lives every day?
1: Oh, there is. Uh, I I think it's always important to reflect on that. And I think a kind of related point that Liddy made, and I think she trod the balance very carefully between crisis as opportunity and crisis as as an absolutely terrible thing. And I think there's been a lot of discussion about how this crisis, this corona crisis, represents an opportunity to build a better world and is showcasing policies that can really make a difference. And I think that's really important, but I think perhaps not enough focus on just how terrible what's going on, what's happened in the last few months, what's going to happen in the next couple of years, how many people are losing their jobs, their livelihoods, the, the pain that people are, are, are suffering. A, a proper understanding of that is, is is also critical. And she was great at, at drawing the, the tension between those two things, I thought.
0: Yeah. And finding the balance, because, of course, you you do want hope and you do want to see that there is a space and a moment for change here. But, yeah, just understanding the actual context and reality of what's happening is, is so important. And um, the other thing I really liked about the interview was, our, you know, because she's been an activist for so many years, we're able to look at that history and see how it informs the work that she's doing today and how also how the struggles all kind of interrelate as well. You know, the fact that she's working on so many different areas that are interrelated from climate to debt and so on. But our editor, Liz, who is a young Kenyan woman, um, you know, when she was doing the post-production for this interview and listening to Liddy talking, she was saying, you know, it's so interesting for her to be able to to learn and, and hear that history because, you know, as a young activist herself, she she wasn't aware of some of that history. And it's just so important to have that framework to understand and inform your activism today. So I thought that was really nice.
1: It is really important. I mean, I remember talking with Liz about the Mau Mau rebellion in, against the British in Kenya, you know, which was brutally suppressed. They had, they imprisoned over 2 million people, they had concentration camps, people treated terribly by the British. And She knew about it, but didn't know as much about it as as she should. And there were many others in the office who didn't, because it's not taught very well in school. And it's the same in the UK, you know, the the way that the empire is taught, the way that imperialism is taught. I was so pleased to see uh, those activists tipping that statue into the sea a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it just, it wasn't just the the activism, the anti-racism. It was that understanding of history and slavery that was just great to see.
0: Yeah, and like you said, it's all over the world. I know, you know, myself, uh, growing up in Oman, I had a very particular history taught to me, and we all do. And and so being able to challenge that and hear different perspectives and getting the stories from those who were, again, on the front lines is just so different and important.
1: I agree. I agree, definitely.
0: So I wanted to ask you about the last question. For those of you who have tuned in regularly, you'll know this. We always ask our guests in the final question what gives them hope in the fight against inequality. And I know, Max, that's one of your favorite parts of, of all of our interviews. So eager to hear what you thought about that one.
1: I honestly thought it was one of the best answers to that question. Uh, in terms of making me think, it was almost like the kind of duty of service. You know, when you think of all the other people that are sacrificing so much, that we have to get up and we have to keep fighting. And it it's partly hope, but it's partly almost a kind of we're duty-bound to fight for a better world. And I, I thought that was, in a way, kind of challenging to me, uh, mm-hmm. but also inspiring at the same time.
0: I agree. And really just, you know, remembering people power and um, and the importance of, of solidarity, I thought, was was very important. Yeah, I think that that, that,
1: that point about people power was really interesting because I remember when we interviewed Elena, the young Peruvian, it's similar, it's just the sheer experience of going through a revolution. Mm-hmm. And seeing how that transforms a society, uh, I mean, it just must be amazing because it really, it just tells you what's possible. Just as you say, it's about this is what people power looks like and feels like. And after that, you can't ever look back, really. Yeah, Uh, I think that's probably true.
0: Well, that wraps up this episode. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, If you're new to Equals Podcast, please do check out our Season 1 and earlier episodes in Season 2. Follow us on Twitter at Equals Hope. And again, thanks for listening.
1: Yes, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, You can also visit our blog site, uh, which is www.equalspodcast.org. Uh, Where well, we've got lots of different blogs, not just about the podcast, but also about inequality from others. And yeah, just just tell your friends and uh, keep listening. Thanks, everybody.
0: Bye. Bye.